I have not preached to a smaller crowd probably than this, so it is, uh, uh, I shared earlier with our <clears throat> skeleton crew that is here, uh, preparing and, and getting this service so that we can do it for you online at home, that uh, it's one thing to preach, it's another thing to preach in front of no one. Um, it's, it's, I'm actually uh, a little bit uh, flustered, you know, and, and I don't know what to do about that. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. But uh, um, part of the struggle in all this is I don't know whether I'm allowed to make jokes or take things completely uh, serious. I certainly don't make light of what is going on, and um, uh, obviously we've made some some tough calls in regards to what the church is doing. And, and, and you know, I don't want to spend too much time talking about this, but I want you uh, who are home uh, maybe wondering why we chose to do this. Uh, um, it's not any one specific thing. Um, we have decided to do this for a number of reasons, a number of inf uh, input that has come in. Um, appreciative of the valuable input that we have received even over in the last 24 hours from some uh, friends, some medical advice. Um, and, you know, part of it, too, is we just want to respect and honor our secular authority who has kind of said, hey, this isn't necessarily a great idea. So um, we're kind of trying to remain under authority in that regard. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, but also uh, consider, you know, is... Uh, is risk worth the reward is kind of some of the things that we, we walk through. But um, we are not walking in fear. Uh, we, we, we will not do that because we have the faith of a sovereign king who reigns over all things. Um, but we also want to be wise. We're told in scripture to be as innocent as doves and as shrewd as serpents, snakes. That sounds always odd to me whenever I've read that, um, but the reality is we're trying to be wise. And so you can continue to pray for us in leadership as we make tough decisions. Uh, the last uh, 72 hours have been weighty for me and filled with a lot of stress and, and trying to make the right decision on behalf of the church family um, and to protect uh, those of you who are part of this fellowship as well. So... Having said that, um, we are going to continue through the book of Mark today, and we are going to be in Mark chapter 15. We're actually going to start on the last verse that Travis taught on last week, uh, verse uh, four, 15, I'm sorry. So Mark 15, we're going to read verses 15 through verse 25. I am flustered, so you're going to have to bear with me. I'll, I'll gain composure as we go through this. Uh, so Mark chapter 15. Uh, if you're at home and you want to stand, feel free to do so. Uh, for those of you here, you, you don't have to, but if you want to, uh, the reason why, I, you know, this is a great opportunity to just give some reasons for why we do certain things. We, we do the scripture reading first so that people understand that we are not pulling whatever we teach from our own opinions and thoughts. We give preeminence to the word, and we just want to give a proper place to it. So starting at verse 15 of Mark chapter 15, it says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! 
And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, or Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that in uh, scary times, in times like these, we can read the reality, the truth that you died for us. Father, that we can put our hope and trust in a matter of fact. And Father, we just ask that you would bless us this morning, that you would speak to us as your people, that you would give us hope and encouragement for the days that lie ahead. We thank you, we praise you, we give you all the glory and honor in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you're still standing, you can sit. Mark 15, I was talking to uh, some guys yesterday about this whole uh, virus and what's going on and, and you know, how, do we, how do we address it as a church fellowship and how do we uh, walk through uh, what's going on. And one of the things I found interesting as we talked about it, we talked about how uh, we don't remember any of this with the last however many uh, virus outbreaks there have been. We didn't remember doing as it so as an overreaction. Uh, we don't remember uh, H1N1 being so serious. Was Is this an overreaction? And some would say yes. Some would say, well, it's only the tip of the iceberg. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, but I think there is something to be learned from uh, what's going on with uh, our remembrance of the viruses to what we're going to look at this morning. It is so easy for for us as time passes to forget things. It's easy for us as, as familiarity and as normalcy goes on to forget how we felt during things. Uh, I believe as a church it is easy to uh, read the gospel account of Christ's crucifixion and to become so familiar with it that it doesn't press upon our hearts the reality and sometimes as time goes on we lose the value of it on a daily basis it's easy as time goes on to forget the reality of what went on and so we want to put in context first this story of Mark's in chapter 15 and then we want to talk uh, a reminder, we're actually going to spend the next three weeks talking about Jesus uh, being crucified uh, for us. So Jesus has spent, if you remember, over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about Jesus has spent time agonizing moments in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, praying and walking through, being forsaken by his Father, uh, uh, an emotional experience that none of us can relate to. Uh, he has experienced an armed crowd showing up to arrest him, uh, parading him around from house of, uh, to house under a sham trial, from 
from there to Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate, being presented before a crowd of, of, of a mob that has declared, crucify him, crucify him. And, and Pilate presents him saying, behold the man, and, and what do you want me to do with him? He, he has witnessed being condemned to death and being uh, having a murderer, an insurrectionist, Barabbas, chosen over him. Can you imagine that experience? He is tired. He has had no sleep. He's been forced to stand all night long through multiple trials. Most likely he's had no food or water in the last 24 hours. Matthew and Mark give us more detail. You know, what's amazing about the, the, the crucifixion story is you can get um, some various perspectives. If you want to find some amazing perspectives, you can read Genesis 22 and see a glimpse into what the Father, meaning God the Father's perspective, would have been uh, throughout this entire thing as Abraham uh, walks with his son Isaac up to the mountaintop and then offers his son as a sacrifice and what must have gone through his head and heart and mind as he walked through that. Or if you want the son's perspective, if you want Jesus' perspective of what this would have been like, you can turn and read in Psalm 22 the perspective of, of what is going on uh, to Jesus. And so with all of that in mind, we turn to Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 15, and we're going to look now at the cruelty of what is going on. You have uh, human brutality uh, put on display for us. In what I would term uh, three words that uh, are probably the biggest understatements of our life, when you read in verse 15, after it says, He released for them Barabbas, in these three words it says, And having scourged Jesus. Having scourged Jesus. There is so much there. That if we just read this, and I think we do this so oftentimes, we read the story of Jesus' crucifixion, and it says, and they crucified him. And they, there is so much more depth there that I think we need to examine and, and keep in mind. And I want to walk through some of this and, 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 and ask a couple of questions. As I've studied this text over the last couple of weeks, the thing that comes to me is, why was it so brutal? Was it necessary to be so brutal? Was it necessary for Jesus, you know, why, why if he was offering his life as a sacrifice, why not just pierce his heart with a sword and have it be over? But it's dragged on through, through a 48-hour period of utter torture, brutality, and, and all kinds of things that when we look at, you find, and the question for me just comes down to why? Why is it necessary? And we'll look at that as we get to the end. But it tells us that he was scourged by Pilate. Uh, the idea is he was flogged, as, as we might have learned from, from other places in Scripture. Scourging is just the process of flogging. Uh, and what that really means is he was half killed. The Jews flogged with a rod. Uh, in Scripture, we're told that they always did 39 Beatings with the rod, they, they stopped at 39 because 40 was a sign of judgment. And in, in case they made a mistake, they would always stop at 39, which equaled mercy, right? 
I mean, that makes sense. If you're only beaten 39 times, that's merciful versus 40 times. Uh, but Paul says he, was, he had this done to him three times. He was beaten with rods, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. The Romans, however, they had no measure or limit. There was no stopping on the number of blows they could do, and they did not use a rod. They used what was called a flagellum. The purpose of flogging, scourging, was to weaken a victim to the point where they were nearly dead so that the crucifixion would not last as long. That was the purpose. And so uh, if you study uh, Roman crucifixions uh, over history, you'll find that it was always a process that they always did before they crucified someone. Crucifixion, by the way, is just an incredible uh, thing that they would have even chosen to do it. it. It was fascinating in my study to find that the Greeks viewed Roman crucifixion as so inhumane that they would not even practice it. The Greeks. So back to flogging. They used what were called lictors, which were professionally trained floggers. They were professionally trained to use uh, uh, the flagellum, this whip. They were trained to elicit and inflict the most amount of damage without killing a person. So they were, they were trained with this. Uh, they, the, the flagellum was a whip that had several leather uh, tongs coming out of it, and they would have at different segments of the tongs uh, embedded both bone or metal or glass broken glass, and they were taught literally how to lay the whip on and to rip it off so that they would not hurt themselves because it was such a dangerous weapon. And their purpose was, and I'm sorry if this is a little graphic, but this is just the reality, their purpose was that they were taught how to do this in order to rip flesh off. Jesus would have been stripped naked at this point. He would have had his hands tied to a pole. And two lictors would have stood on, on one side and the other. And they would have taken turns striking him with it. And they would start at the nape of the neck and they would go all the way down the back till they got to his calves. And they would just continue. And the Romans, they had no trouble with cruelty. You keep in mind that the Roman soldier spent 25 years of service in the Roman army where they fought in hand-to-hand -hand combat. With, with, if you've ever seen anything where the way they would fight battles, they would literally uh, have short sword and shield and they would uh, be stabbing at one another. There was, there was, can you imagine, we talk about our soldiers coming home from war, having PTSD. These guys would have experienced such graphic brutality in war that, that they're conscience would have been seared toward violence and they they came to a place that that they never wanted to be which we'll talk about but uh, essentially they were given uh, the opportunity to scourge Jesus and they were they were given no limits and when the scourging was done, Josephus actually tells us that many times, Josephus the historian, a Jewish historian, says many times the rib bones and the kidneys and the bowels would be left exposed. You could see them. 
So when I say it is, a, it is a massive understatement to read, and having scourged Jesus, there is a lot of graphic detail that we can, we can quickly forget. I found it interesting, some of the essential prophecies in Scripture, when we talk about Josephus saying that the kidneys, which would have been below the, the rib bones, would be exposed in, in Job chapter 16, verse 13. It says, his archers surrounded me, he lashes open my kidneys, he does not spare. His back would have had, uh, uh, his back would have been so torn apart. In the Psalms, we're told in Psalm one twenty nine that the plowers plowed upon my back; they have made their furrows deep. This is what Jesus experienced. The amount of blood loss would have been so incredible. His heart would literally have started pumping harder and. Faster to compensate for the blood loss. All this, by the way, we are told he willingly endured. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, it tells us that he offered his back to them. And all this, when I think about it and I comprehend what all is going on, it is amazing to me that Jesus kept himself alive. What do I mean? He could have died right then and there. He's the creator of the universe. And we're told in Colossians that he holds all things together by the word of his mouth. He is the one who sustains and controls all things. And we are told at the end, it says he gives up his spirit when he had breathed his last, when it was all done. Sometime, if you have a chance, I'd encourage you, I found this book, um, Died He for Me. It's a physician's view of the crucifixion of Jesus. Fascinating read. It's a pretty quick read, but it's, it's, it's interesting to see and to read through what Jesus would have gone through and, and things that we can't even comprehend because we just read it and we kind of gloss over it. And we, 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 yeah, we know that, but how impactful is it? So that's the, the scourging. And then it tells us in verse 16, the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head and with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Jesus is brought before the soldiers into the what was most likely the Antonio Fortress, and the battalion, uh, battalion simply is 600 men. They probably weren't all there, but the point is this is a large gathering. Most people think it was probably at least 200 soldiers. And keep in mind the context here. The Jews were hated by the Romans. They were absolutely detested by the Romans because if you're a Roman soldier, you have to keep in mind that these Jews always were rebellious. They never wanted to submit to Rome as a nation. Uh, how many times they had tried to rebel. Uh, uh, no one ever wanted to serve in Judea. It was like the worst possible uh, deployment. And so they 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 despised it, and now they're being given a man who they were told claims to be the king of the Jews. 
which elevates the level of, of their despisement of Jesus. And basically, they're, they're given Jesus, and, and the Romans would have been essentially told, here you can have your fun with him. And they were brutal, and they had no conscience. And as long as they didn't kill him, they could do whatever they wanted to. They could abuse him as much as they wished. So what do they do? They, they, it tells us that they clothed him with a purple robe. And I want you to comprehend, Jesus has had his back completely torn apart. If you've ever ripped a scab off as the, the wound is open and it begins to clot, it forms a, a scab. And you can imagine having cloth put upon open wound. And then it tells us that they would take it off of him. And, and each time they put it on or took it off of him, it would reopen those wounds. We're told that they made a crown of thorns. The thorns uh, probably were, were from the, thing, the, the bushes that they would gather that they oftentimes would dry out to use as kindling for fire. These thorns were, were most likely an inch to two inches long. And the crown probably had an upwards of a hundred thorns. It is interesting that in Genesis 3, verse 18, we're told that the curse upon man for sin was the thorn and thistles that would grow up. And now this curse would be put upon Jesus. Scalp is filled with lots of blood vessels from a medical perspective. And that's why if you've ever gotten a cut on your head, it bleeds quite a bit. Uh, and so they would have, uh, it would have been filled with lots of nerve endings. And so when they pushed it on... Inch and a half long thorns would have probably actually pressed through the scalp, which they say is about a quarter inch thick and would have hit his cranium. If you've ever had a, a splinter break off in your finger or somewhere, you know how much that hurts. Most likely some of these would have broken off into Jesus' scalp. Imagine the incredible pain. And the text tells us that it uses the imperfect tense for the verbing. So it says uh, that they, when they struck him on the head, the idea is that they continued. It was imperfect. It was a continual thing. So they continued saluting him. They continued striking him. They continued spitting on him. They continued kneeling before him in mockery until they were finished. Matthew tells us that, you know, they put this, this uh, rod in his hand as a picture of a mockery of a king with his scepter. And they would take it from him and beat him on the head with it. All this torture, cruelty done to him. And then we're told at the end... When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So after all of this, after all that torture, all that, that mockery, can you imagine the king of kings uh, being mocked in such a way and, and being, uh, you know, the emotional toil that he would have gone through, the, the physical toil being, uh, you know, 12 hours with no rest, no food, no water, the dehydration, the, the, the medical uh, complications that would have arisen, and, and all the things that are going on. And yet at the end of all of this, the flogging, the mockery, the beating, as if they weren't enough, now it's time to hang on a cross and die. 
And so we're told, they led him out to crucify him. The march to Calvary, to Golgotha, was probably about a half a mile. And whenever there was an execution by crucifixion, they would always parade the, the, the guilty, condemned person out with a, a Roman soldier leading the front, carrying a, on a spike or a pole what was called the Tetulus, which was the name of the prisoner and then the crime for which they committed. And we're told that Pilate made a sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And that was paraded in front of Jesus, and it was a, a message to the general public to say, hey, if you do this, this is your fate. And they made uh, the, the condemned carry what is called the patabellum, which is the, the cross section, the horizontal section. And oftentimes, you know, depending on the size, it would weigh somewhere between 100 to 200 pounds. And they would literally tie it to the, the criminal that they would have to carry it the full half mile. So imagine Jesus having been weakened from blood loss, dehydrated, no food, no energy, no strength, now having his arms tied to this patabellum and then be forced to march, carrying it a half a mile uh, to his destination where he would be crucified. And the other thing to note about that is we are, we are imp indicated that Jesus at one point in time would fall, stumble and fall. Now imagine stumbling and falling with your hands tied so that you cannot brace your fall. He would have probably fallen on his chest, his face, most likely. We don't know. But we're told something amazing in this passage here. It says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. The Romans had a, had a law that, that allowed them to compel uh, anyone uh, to carry something for up to a mile. Jesus kind of references this. If, if you're uh, told to carry something a mile, go two miles. So here we have Simon uh, coming in for the feast of Passover. Keep in mind that at this time there were lots of visitors in Jerusalem uh, for the Passover feast. They would have been here to celebrate, so uh, he's most likely of Jewish descent of some degree. Uh, but what is fascinating is that Mark uses the names, Simon, Alexander, Rufus. Mark does not typically use names in describing people. Why is that so fascinating? Because the church in reading this would have known who these people are. means the church knew the family. In fact, in Romans 13, 13, Paul addresses in a greeting and a salutation, greet Rufus, most likely the son of Simon. Church tradition tells us that Alexander, the son, was martyred, and Rufus became the bishop of Spain. Why is that significant? Because as Jesus collapses in front of Simon, Simon, who happened to be there for the feast of, of the Passover, met face to face with the actual Passover lamb. I can't imagine that that wouldn't have changed him. He was closer to the Passover lamb, which he came to celebrate, than Moses ever was. He returned to a wife and two boys, and he had to be changed. His life was interrupted by Jesus. 
His Passover would never be the same. He met the Lamb of God face to face. Brothers and sisters, understand God's interruptions in your life are never interruptions. The story goes on and it tells us that he was led to Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. Some have said it looked like a skull. Some say it's the place of skull because of all the crucifixions that were done there. Um, if you go to Israel today, you can find multiple sites um, that claim to be Golgotha. There are two particular sites. I've been to both of them. Uh, but it says that when he got there, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. There was a ministry of women who would oftentimes go out to the crucifixion site that as these men or, or the, the crucified, um, the, those who were being crucified, as they came to the place, the, these women would give them this myrrh, which acted as an analgesic. I don't know how to say that. You know, the thing that makes you not feel pain, that thing. They would offer it to him, and, and it would kind of, an anesthetic, that's what I was looking for. I have it in my notes. I should just look at my notes. Uh, an anesthetic, um, and Jesus, we're told, refused it. The Greek tense again here is imperfect, that they kept offering it to him. They kept offering it to him, and Jesus refused. Why? I think because he didn't want his senses dulled. Oftentimes, we might ask ourselves what things can dull our senses when we ought to be about the Father's business. There's lots of things that can distract us, lots of things that can cause us to get a divided attention. Text goes on in verse 24. It tells us that uh, they, they offered him this, and then they crucified him. They divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. These were the soldiers at the foot of the cross. They brutalized him. And then they cast lots. Essentially, they gambled for his clothes. He sees it all. Jesus is there. He sees it all. This is an incredible picture for us today, brothers and sisters. There are so many people who sit at the foot of the cross and gamble. And gamble. Not for Jesus' clothes, but with their eternal destination. These soldiers saw the whole thing. They heard. They saw the, 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 the trials from a distance, maybe. They, they heard the accusations. They saw the responses of Jesus. They came just as Simon of Cyrene had done. They came face to face with the Lamb of God, and their choice was to gamble. They heard the gospel. We so oftentimes hear the gospel. And how many people who hear the gospel today gamble with that information? With eternity at stake. When people get to stand before God in that moment of judgment, they will not be able to say, we never knew. No one will be allowed to, to stand and before God and say, we did not understand or deny that they had opportunity to hear the truth. What an amazing contrast. 
Simon has his life interrupted as he's on his journey to celebrate the Passover feast. In a religious ceremony, he comes to Jerusalem and his life is interrupted. He comes face to face with Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, and how his life must have been changed. And these soldiers come and they see and witness and are a part of all that's going on and their choice is to gamble. I don't know who's at home watching this. But just as every Sunday when we have service here, we do not gamble with the fact that there may be some who do not know Jesus. Jesus was perfect. He was holy. He was just. He deserved none of this, and yet he willingly offered himself to go to the cross, to die. Why? Why? Because we deserved it, and he took it. So what do we take away from all this? Because it concludes with verse 25. It was the third hour. It's about 9 a.m. when they crucified him. What do we take away from all this? Again, I asked the questions earlier. Why, why the brutality? Why was it necessary for Jesus to endure all this? Why was it, uh, a, for lack of a better term, a requirement for Jesus to go through this? Why, why not just have a quick, easy death? You know, wouldn't a sacrifice, they, when they offered sacrifices to God in the Old Testament, when they offered the sacrifice of a lamb without blemish or spot, they didn't torture it first. They didn't brutalize it before, before cutting its throat and killing it. And offering it as a sacrifice. They didn't, they didn't brutalize it. So why Jesus? Why did he, if he is a picture of that sacrifice, if he's the fulfillment, I mean, of that sacrifice, why did he go through all this? Why was it necessary? And I think there are three significant reasons I want us to consider this morning. Beaten for me. I think we need to understand from this text that my sin is serious. My sin is serious in me. Why such brutality? Well, this shows us the brutality of humanity, which shows us the condemned black heart of humanity. Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. We cannot gloss over sin. We cannot minimize sin. We cannot say it's not that big a deal. The reality is Jesus was beaten for you. We're told in Isaiah that by his stripes, by his beatings, we are healed. That idea of his stripes being the marks upon his back that were created from the, 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 the whip. The wages of sin is death. There is no minimizing that. There is no sweeping it under the rug. Why was Jesus so brutally beaten? Because the wages of sin is death. It is not simply beating. It is not simply a minimal punishment. It is death. And it goes on. Paul talks about it in Romans 7, 11. He says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment to deceive me, through it killed me. The seriousness of sin is that. James 1.15, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings death. 
Why was Jesus so brutally beaten? Why did he undergo such cruelty and brutality? Why? So that we might stop and pause and consider the reality is that Jesus didn't simply just endure with no pain and no suffering. He experienced a reality that he was beaten and, and, and bruised. And the brutality of it all is to show me that our sin deserves far more than we give it credit. It is a serious matter. And we talk about gambling with the gospel. We talk about this idea that if we understand how serious our sin is, we come to a place where we read the scripture and we say, if we can read this and, and not just minimize it, but understand the brutality of what Jesus endured and what he went through, we can understand that there is something serious about this. My sin should not just be, oh, I guess I did that. I shouldn't do it again. But Jesus was beaten mercilessly. Why? Because sin and the wrath of God needed to be poured upon. Because it was an unholy thing. So when I consider why the brutality, I start with understanding the seriousness of my sin. Beaten for me, I should also consider that my Savior is serious for me. Why the brutality? How and why? Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Listen to this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Did you hear that? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What was the joy that was set before him? I believe it was a couple of things. Number one, to be seated again in the heavenlies with his father in the right hand and in the very uh, throne. But also I believe that the joy that was set before him was the redemption of mankind, a relationship restored. Paul tells us that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Why did Jesus endure the beatings, the cruelty? Why, when Jesus has told us already in the, in the account of leading up to this, that he could call down legions of angels to defend him, that he could walk away from all this? Why, when he could have said, you know what, enough with this, instead of trying to, to fix everything, just destroying it and wiping it all away and starting all over from scratch? Why? Because he gave himself for us because he loved. That when we read about what Jesus endured, the brutality and the, the, the horrific nature of what was going on, that he, he held himself together to get to the cross so that he could die in this manner, why did he do it? Because he loved me. John 10, 18 reminds us of that Jesus himself said, No one takes it from me, meaning his life, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This I have received from my Father. Jesus didn't have to go through this. He chose to go through it. Why? Because of his love. And when I consider this, and I sit here and I evaluate the brutality and the nature of all that's going on, I hope that I can pause and consider how much Jesus loves me. That he would willingly offer his back 
to be beaten mercilessly, to be cruelly treated, to be mocked as king of kings. He would sit there and have things done to him that he did not deserve. Why? He loved me and gave himself for me. Beaten for me, my sin is serious in me. Beaten for me, my Savior is serious for me. Beaten for me, my sanctification is serious over me. That when I consider all of this, I can consider the fact that I am sanctified by the blood and by what Jesus did for me. 1 John 1 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1, 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Why such cruelty? Why did he endure those things? Because he is serious about making you clean. Because he is serious about cleansing you from all unrighteousness. Because he is serious about saving us. It's a hard passage. There's no way around it. It's a hard reality. It's a shameful passage of humanity. It's embarrassing to read, because we, we look at this, by the way, and we say, man, look at what those people did to him. Look at what they did. Their blood, his blood be on their hands. No, 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 his blood is on all our hands. If you hear this passage, if you read through it, if you study it, if you spend any time contemplating the brutality of what is going on, if you, if you come to this and you sit here and say, okay, I, I see that, that's nice, but it hasn't transformed you, if you haven't taken a moment to just pause, and here's the reality, brothers and sisters, that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of our sin deserve this. And in our place, Jesus said, I will go and I will offer myself. I will offer my back. I will offer my body. I will offer my blood. And he says this to us. And if you are either online, if you're around here, whatever, wherever you are, I want you to consider for a moment, is this your hope? This is what you deserve. This is the reality of what each and every human being deserves. 
And as we consider what Jesus endured, we can consider what he endured for me. And the beauty of it is this, that we have been told over and over again in Scripture that if we recognize this as truth, if we say, I deserve this, but Jesus went in my place and I am putting my hope, my faith in what Jesus did for me, that his body was beaten and broken, that I might be healed, that his blood was poured out, that my sins might be cleansed, and that he was crucified, that he died, and that he was buried... And three days later, the grave could not contain him. And he rose from the dead to give us power over sin and death. And if I hope in that and I put my trust in that, Paul tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So my exhortation to those who do not have a relationship with Christ, as you listen to this, as you consider what is going on, don't be a soldier gambling at the foot of the cross. Because your eternal destination is not a matter of gambling, but it can be a matter of hope. That the Savior who is at the foot of the, who is on the cross before us, you know, the, the great uh, Fanny Crosby wrote the hymn, Near to the Cross. Uh, and I love the verse that says, keep its shadows over me. And the idea is, may I never forget the power of the cross. May I never forget that Jesus died for me. And we can consider the, the cruelty, the brutality, and we can look at it and say, my sin is serious in me. We can look at it and say, my Savior loves me and he is serious for me. And we can look at it and say, my Savior has cleansed me and has sanctified me and he is serious about it. And we can walk as brothers and sisters in Christ with the knowledge that Jesus has died. He has been beaten so that I would not. And we can celebrate in that. So the worship team is going to come up. And we're going to close with songs. Or song, I didn't see the order of service. Two songs. And as they do, I would encourage you to remember the cross, to remember what he has gone through, to remember these things so that you cannot walk in shame or in fear, to remember these things that you can know that your sin is serious, but he is more serious for you, to remember that he is so serious that he has poured out his blood that you might be sanctified and cleansed. And if you are sitting at home and you do not know this Jesus who has done this for you, do not gamble any longer. But take the time to pause and reflect and to consider, maybe you need to ask yourself, why would he do this for me? It seems so absurd that the king of kings would subject himself to this. He did it because he loves you and he wants to call you his own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you that in a day and age where we can be miles apart, we can worship together. We thank you that you are sovereign and you reign supreme. We thank you that you have died for us, that you did not shy away from the cruelty, that you did not say, no, 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 that's too much, I'm not going to do it, but you said, I will go through whatever it takes because I love my children and I will offer myself to the point that you would be beaten and swollen and your face would be unrecognizable as a man. For me. Father, I pray that we would never get so complacent or so comfortable with 
the cross that we neglect to remember the reality that you have died for me. And we thank you, we worship you, we give you all the glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.